Our colleague Mary Kay Cabot is being inducted into the Cleveland Press Club Hall of Fame today. Congratulations to Mary Kay. I'll be at that ceremony. She is a real groundbreaker in sports coverage, one of the best football reporters in the country and is overdue for this kind of recognition. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin. Laura Johnston back from jury duty. She did not get picked. And because it's Wednesday, we have Courtney Astolfi. And we've got a lot of really interesting stories to talk about that are not the normal kinds of stories. So let us begin. Is the Cleveland Clinic out of line charging patients for the time doctors spend responding to emails? Lisa, as as everybody knows, I send out a text message to a bunch of subscribers every day, and I kind of measure the interest in stories by what I get back. I got 142 (laughs) responses to that. This is the talker story of the week. What is the clinic doing and what is the thinking? So the thinking is, is that starting in 2019 and then really escalating through 2020 during the pandemic, people were not going to doctor's offices. They were discouraged from doing so. So virtual visits became the rise, but it really started to cause a problem. So earlier this week, the Cleveland Clinic announced that um, that in an email to their patients that they will be charging for answering electronic messages from patients for up to 50 bucks. These would be messages that have complicated questions that take five minutes or more to answer. This does take effect tomorrow. Um, and on this, uh, they say that messages like, let, let's use some examples here. So some of the things that they will be charging for, if you change your medications, if you're reporting any new symptoms or conditions, if you're reporting changes to a long-term condition, checkups on long-term condition care, and then requests to complete medical forms. So things that would remain free would be prescription refills, scheduling appointments, um, you know, uh, recommendations for, you know, referrals and that kind of thing. So the Cleveland Clinic, uh, my chart messages since 2019, like I said, they had to answer in three business days and they found that they weren't able to do that anymore. Um, University Hospital. So they're at the forefront of a trend, it seems, at least in Northeast Ohio and probably nationally. But University Hospitals is considering similar changes with their My UH Care next year for complex responses, including research on specific issues, deep chart reviews, and then communication with other caregivers. Metro Health is saying they don't have any current plans, but they're evaluating the situation. And there are others across Ohio that are thinking about it, but Cleveland Clinic is definitely first in line. So what's happening here is that they found that electronic messages were like replacing in-person visits. So that led to lost revenue for the provider. Also, they're worried about the limitations of technology that may lead to less effective care because they're not laying hands on your body or talking to you personally. You know, my take on this when I first heard it is why are people upset about this? If your doctor is taking time to deal with you, shouldn't they get paid for it? I've had a a couple of tests on a shoulder this year, an MRI and and an X-ray. And when it was all said and done, my my doctor sat down with all the results and wrote me a note saying, okay, you're, you're good to go. You know, let's follow the plan we talked about and, you know, let's see what, what's going on in six months. Normally in the old days, I would have had to go in for that. So I'd have to drive in, sit in the waiting room, go in and they'd get paid for the full visit. Why shouldn't they get paid for that and save me a bunch of money in the meantime? But 
when I suggested that in my text message, the overwhelming majority of people were like, this is just a cash grab. This is ridiculous. The, the doctors aren't really doing it. It's going to be nurses doing it. And my favorite was, okay, if, if they can do this, can I charge them for the time I waste in their waiting room being delayed for my appointment? I thought, okay, that's fair. Maybe you can. But if you think about it, my doctor's really, really busy. Um, she's a younger woman and she actually canceled my appointment yesterday and I couldn't get another one for two months. But do, yeah, if you're spending, so say the typical office visit, if you're not getting a physical, about 10 to 15 minutes. If they're spending that same amount of time answering your electronic message, doing research and looking at your chart, that's a visit in my mind. Yeah, I, I just, I, I look, th this needs guardrails. And I think the clinic did an incredibly clumsy job of announcing this. I think they shot, what I would have done to fire them, I would have either invited Julie Washington or Gretchen Crowen over to lay it all out so that we could do a full job of what this is about and what the guardrails are, or do a press conference that says, look, this is a radical change. Here's why we feel it's okay. And here's exactly what we're going to charge and how it's going to go. Instead, it was a, you know, a notice that, hey, we're going to start charging for this on Thursday. And everybody's confused. You know, if, if it depends on what they're charging for and, and how much they're charging as to whether it's fair. My only point is, is if a doctor is spending time focused on you, that would have been taken place in a doctor's office before, but now takes place remotely. How, how is it unfair to say they should be paid for that? I, I totally understand where you're coming from, Chris. I think people are just frustrated and angry with the billing system of all healthcare at this point. And I mean, how many times have we heard about people complaining about bills, that, you know, surprise bills, this is not that. But I think if, if they looked at it as a part of the overhaul of how doctors are spending their time and how patients are paying for their health care, it would make more sense. Yeah. I, it, look, they also could make money if they follow the path of Cleveland, right? Cleveland refuses to refund income taxes to people that didn't step foot in the city during the pandemic. They could just start charging facility fees when you're sitting at home, right? Because they're in the facility. Maybe they could argue they should assess you the facility fee. Uh, you got to watch for that kind of sleazy stuff. And I hope there's some kind of auditing function but this is just about the basics of getting a doctor paid. Interesting. It's a good story. It's on cleveland.com. Julie Washington wrote it. She talked to lots of people, provides a lot of background. It's today in Ohio. Remember back in 2014 when a guy went down a garbage chute at Progressive Field and ended up in a landfill dead? Why eight years later is this case suddenly being labeled a homicide? Laura, this is one of the big mysteries of uh, eight years ago. I mean, we, we everybody was buzzing about this. A gruesome way to die. No answers on how it happened. But they said at the time, no foul play. Right. And it's one of these stories that really sticks with you all these years later. I couldn't remember when it was, but I can remember viscerally learning about it. It's because it seems so unbelievable. But Corey Barron died in a five-story fall from a trash chute at Progressive Field during a Jason Aldean concert. And this was originally ruled uh, the cause of death is undetermined. They had no explanation on how Corey Barron, who was six foot two, 225 pounds, got through into this garbage chute was located inside a utility room at the top of the stadium. And they found him days later in a landfill. His family always believed he died under suspicious circumstances. They hired private investigators to work on the case. They offered a reward. And I guess what happened is Cleveland police reopened the case, used new technology they didn't have eight years ago. I, we don't know exactly 
what that is or if they have any leads, but it did mean that they were able to prosecutors can charge and that Lorraine County coroner, Frank Miller, he wasn't the coroner at the time of death. He said that they've relooked at this and that Barron was involved in an altercation at the stadium before his death. I don't think anybody bought that he simply fell down the chute. When you looked at the way it was situated, it would be really hard to just accidentally fall down the chute. But, But because it was such an odd way for somebody to die, lots of people were were transfixed by it and to, to just be back eight years later saying okay it's a homicide how do you even begin to prove what killed him it's going to be interesting to see if there are more developments yeah absolutely there was a lawsuit in 2018 two sides settled out of court that was with cleveland indians baseball company they had sought at least one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars in damages and they argued that the ballpark and the vendors failed to secure the room where this shoot was located they failed to warn guests of a five-story drop obviously this is not like something out in the open and how he would have gotten into that utility closet in the first place is a really big question it's today in ohio How is watchdog reporting by Caitlin Durbin ending the humiliating situation in the Cuyahoga County Jail where prisoners sit draped in bedsheets, toga style, while waiting for their clothes to be laundered? Courtney, this is an outrageous story when when we first reported it. This was supposed to have been fixed four years ago, back when you were reporting on the jail and the marshals investigated and pointed this out. It's shameful that it took this long. And now it's shameful that they're trying to tell people that Caitlin's reporting was wrong. She's a dogged reporter, and she came out the records to not only prove she was right, but prove that her reporting caused them to finally fix this situation. Yeah, this definitely reminded me of the antics the county was pulling back in the thick of things um, a few years ago. But here we go again, Kate, Caitlin. Caitlin in October, like you said, had this story describing how inmates didn't have clothes on wash day. They had to sit in their in their underwear waiting for their, their clothes to get cleaned because they didn't have a second pair of clothing, right? So right after Caitlin's story came out, three days in fact, uh, jail supervisors ordered correction officers to search cells throughout the jail for extra sets of clothing and blankets. And and they wanted to collect these spares that were being, you know, held on to by some inmates and redistribute it, first of all, to make sure that everybody had what they needed. And then, you know, after that, the county put in a big order, a huge new order for new uniforms, enough to cover all the inmates and make sure that they each have a spare set of clothes. You know, so so this flurry of activity right after Caitlin's reporting, I mean, it it totally a response to Caitlin's reporting. Right. Um, but but like you said, at the same time that she was kind of digging into this and, you know, county officials were working to discredit this 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 story. So, you know, as the county's working to fix this issue, some county officials are telling Cleveland.com and even Councilwoman Sunny Simon that the information about these clothing issues was outdated. And um, Simon basically told us that the administration told her and her colleagues that it was looking into these alleged conditions. But at the same time, administrators were assuring council that inmates already had access to two uniforms. 
Yeah, they lied. I mean, it's just a flat-out lie. And when and Sonny Simon alerted because they made, as Caitlin pointed out, the biggest uniform purchase in at least the last five years, and she's asking questions about why. And they're saying, oh, nothing to see here. This is routine. They're, they're just not telling the truth. Wouldn't it have made sense to, to say, to just come out and be gracious and say, you know what? We meant to fix this when the Marshall's report came out. We kind of thought we did. Caitlin's reporting has shown us we didn't. That's that's a bad on us, but we are fixing it now. Thanks, Caitlin, for for pointing that out. We need to take care of it. That, that, no harm, no foul. No one would begrudge you. But but lying about it and trying to to mislead the county councilwoman who's asking a legitimate question is just another reason why this government cannot get out of office fast enough. They're, what are we down to, like 40-some days? It's just ridiculous that they would try to discredit the reporting instead of just be gracious and fix the problem. How inhumane is it to make somebody in a jail sit in a bedsheet while they're waiting for their underwear to get clean? Yeah, it's 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 really it's really gross the way just like own up own up to the issue like you said um but but this administration has done this throughout reporting on on bad conditions inside the jail kind of gaslighting obfuscating saying nothing to see here while scrambling to fix problems that they know are problematic on the back end I I should point out that the only reason this is being fixed is because we have a newsroom that's robust and has reporters like Caitlin and when you were covering it previously, Courtney, to do the work. It's the value of independent, robust journalism. And it's I hope people who support us realize this is what their money supports. People will be treated humanely because we are here and because we had a reporter like Caitlin do the work. It's today in Ohio. If you spend any time on nextdoor.com, you know about porch pirates. They are quite active this time of the year, stealing packages delivered to houses by UPS, Amazon, and Federal Express. But Mentor is fighting back. Lisa, what are they doing? Yeah, the Mentor Police Department is going to be using bait boxes that are outfitted with GPS trackers to try and catch the porch pirates that are sure to, you know, show up during this holiday season. Scott Bell with the Police Department's Crime Prevention Unit says they're going to look for homeowners' approval. They want to seek out homeowners that will allow these planted boxes on their porch. An undercover officer will monitor its movement by the GPS and also cruise the neighborhood kind of looking for, you know, trouble. They're also asking residents to register their doorbell cameras if they have one uh, in the Lake County Security Camera Registration and Mapping Program. They haven't really made any arrests yet with this GPS system, but they have caught some just doing undercover work. Back in December 2020, they arrested a 45-year-old Willoughby woman who was suspected in three porch pirate thefts. But uh, Bell also has some, some advice. He says, you really should pay attention to the estimated delivery times and and delivery confirmations that you get through most providers. And you might consider having an item delivered to a store or a mall. You could also get yourself a lockbox. I know my neighbor next door gets a lot of packages. He has them delivered to the back so nobody can see them there. And uh, yes, and also this is shoplifting season. So, you know, not just porch pirates, but shoplifters at malls. He says, be aware of your surroundings. They've already had 17 shoplifting incidents and mentor and various big box stores. So yeah, it is the season to be robbing. All right. When's the last time anybody in this podcast shopped at a mall? <laughs> Laura? 
I mean, are we counting Crocker Park as a mall? <laughs> because then it was last week. <laughs> okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This feels a bit like tilting at windmills with the number of drivers who do it. But what are Ohio legislators planning for people who send text messages while driving? Laura, this is everywhere. I mean, you see it every time you drive. There are a lot of people looking at their phones. I don't know how you stop it, but what do they want to do? They want to make it a primary offense because right now you can be charged with it, but only if you're pulled over for something else, maybe like a broken taillight or you're weaving or speeding. This would make it the primary offense that you could be pulled over just for that. However, I mean, they've got a couple of weeks to get this through the legislature. It's been legislature. It's been sitting for about a year. And so there's still a lot of pushback. So there's a bunch of exceptions. So the bill blocks drivers from using, holding, or physically supporting with any part of a person's body, a phone. But there are these long list of exemptions or emergencies, non-moving situations, navigating, using maps, using a speakerphone, using single swipe functions like changing a song. So I'm not sure how you couldn't defend yourself with that. Wait, wait, though. The idea that you get an exemption for looking at a map. Yeah, that bothers me. That is major concentration, not on the roadway, Mm -hmm. if you're looking at a map. So how how much teeth is this going to have? Because House Majority Leader Bill Seitz is saying people don't see through their ears, so it's fine to hold a phone up to your ear. Well, that just defeats the entire purpose, right? Um, And there are even studies that show just having a conversation on the phone, whether you're holding that phone or not, can lead to distracted driving. Even if you're just talking, you know, without, you know, into into your car. The the scariest thing that I see is when people have their eyes on their phone. Mm -hmm. You usually notice it when they're weaving all over the lane. And then when you get past them because, you you know, you're worried they're going to crash into you, you see they're focused on their phone and they're not looking at the road. It's kind of amazing we don't have more accidents that way. I credit him for trying to stop it, but it, it, it doesn't seem like you can really stop this wave. No, it's there's 12,000 distracted driving crashes in Ohio last year. 300 ser- serious injuries caused from it. 43 deaths. That's pretty scary. That's a big number. It's today in Ohio. At least when people listen to the podcast, they can do so while driving because it's <laughs> passive. You know, The podcast <laughs> is the best use of your phone in your car. Listen to us. We've talked for years about closing Burke Lakefront Airport to give this region more access to Lake Erie, something that we thought was quite popular. But when we did some polling on the question. We were surprised by the response. Courtney, this was one of the most depressing parts of the polling we did. It made me sad. Yeah, I'm really scratching my head here. What What's going on? So, you know, as part of this effort, we teamed up with Baldwin Wallace to do a poll that ended up involving about 500 people from around the region. And and 54% of, of those who responded to the poll said <laughs> Burke should either definitely or probably be kept open. So, whoa. Uh, you know, like, we got... Yeah, I know. Whoa <laughs> is right. It's like, what? You know, 26.5% thought it should definitely or probably close. So more than, or about double there. And, but then we had a good chunk of people, about 19% who said, who said they didn't know. And, and we found that the responses were, you know, largely consistent within a few percentage points, regardless of the respondents' age, income, education, race. You know, it seemed like the biggest difference here was between respondents who identified as Republican 
they were more likely to favor keeping the airport open, 64% compared to 50% of those who said they were Democrats here. But I, I think it is worth pointing out that that the folks in this poll come from Cuyahoga County, right? But also Geauga, Lake, Lorraine, Medina, Portage, and Summit counties. I, I got a sneaking suspicion that the Cuyahoga Countyans and potentially Clevelanders, the, those ratios would probably be different. What do you think? Well, what I suspect is that people are unaware of the issues involving this. And the reason I say that, I gave a talk on Monday to the in-town club, a bunch of people that have had a lecture series forever. And in the question and answer period, somebody raised their hand about a previous poll story we did about Jim Jordan, in which more than half the people we polled didn't know enough to have an opinion about Jim Jordan. And this person was asking me the question was appalled at that. And, and said, you know, that how can you not know about Jim Jordan? And, and have you thought about going into the schools to teach people how to be news consumers? And my answer was more about the newsosphere. We've done everything we can do to explain to people who Jim Jordan is and what he stands for. But I don't think the other media in town do. They Most of them largely cover crime. And if people are not, whatever their news source is, many people, they use us, but many people don't, if their news sources aren't discussing these issues like Jim Jordan or the value of Burke as lakefront land, then how do they form opinions? How do they know? It, it's really a dearth of news coverage, I think, that's causing people to be uninformed. Well, what do you think? That, I think that and that they just can't, like they just cannot pay attention to Jim Jordan all the time because it's so toxic. And I'm not, I don't think it's the same for lakefront. I think a lot more people care about the lake than they do about Jordan's politics. But I think there is just a turn away from news. We've talked about that in the past. Yeah, I just am surprised that there wasn't, that people didn't understand what's going on with Burke. Because I just, I can't believe that if people understood what's going on with Burke, they would still be arguing to keep it open. I, and I, I, it just feels like there's a dearth of... Um, information. You know, I, I did want to jump in here. So so as part of this poll, you know, a second piece of it, we wanted to look at, okay, well, what, how would you want the Burke property to look like in, in the future? And the smallest percentage said that 11.7% of respondents wanted it to be turned into a park. That was the smallest share of any of the responses for the options of what that land could be in the future. And and none of the options that involved closing the airport got more than 12% of support from respondents. You know, about 54% wanted to expand the airport. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's today in Ohio. Like I said, depressing. Let's talk about pricey houses. What is the most expensive listing in Northeast Ohio and not far away from it? How much did Brown's quarterback, Deshaun Watson, pay for his new digs? Lisa, one of the favorite pieces of content that we have on our site every week is the house mm -hmm. of the week. Everybody wants to look at these things. The priciest one is pretty pricey. And it's gorgeous and it has its own name. It's called Ravencrest. It's a 32,000 square foot mansion on 150 acres. This is weird though. It has six bedrooms, but 15 bathrooms. I, that just strikes me as an odd 
ratio there. <laughs> but it was built for developer Scott Wolstein for $30 million. It was finished in 2009, and then he passed away this last May. So the house is now on the market for $15 million. It's on County Line Road in Hunting Valley. It has things like an eight-car garage, a designer kitchen, a climbing wall, a wine cellar, a gift wrap room, a dog room, among other things. But if you look at the pictures, and there are many pictures in the article on cleveland.com, it's just gorgeous. Wood paneling, grand staircase. I mean, it's it's a showpiece for somebody. And just down the road in Hunting Valley, uh, Deshaun Watson, the quarterback for the Browns, bought a mansion for $5.4 million. He closed on that deal October 31st. It's only half the size of Ravencrest. It's 17,000 square feet, five bedrooms, eight bathrooms on five and Point eight acres, and this has a lot of amenities too. It has a separate carriage house, has a fitness center, a pool, a theater, tennis and volleyball courts. I mean, a movie and an indoor lap pool, basketball court. I mean, there's just all kind. Of, I'm sorry, that's the Ravencrest house. But anyway, uh, yeah. So he's just right down the road, and it looks like he's committed to stay in Cleveland if he's dropping five mil on a house. Okay, so really, what do you get? for 15 million that you don't get for five. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you're talking staggering sums of money here. Yeah. Well, it's like I said, Ravencrest is twice the size and has more amenities, but you know, Hey, it's, it's, that's hunting Valley for you. Didn't Wolstein spend like twice that to build yeah, it? Yeah. 30 like, million. Whoever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I guess he didn't get his you, money. Out you know, that. it's interesting. I'm the only one that's going to remember this, but back when they were building that house, they fought very hard to keep anybody from seeing the building plans because they thought it was such a security issue. But now that it's for sale, <laughs> you get every photo and you see everything about it. Uh, interesting how times change. It's today in Ohio. Ohioans pay a lot of money to Walmart, but now Walmart is paying something back. Laura, how much is the retailer coughing up for Ohio as part of the settlement for its role in the opioid crisis? So this is just preliminary, but $114 million. That's part of a nationwide settlement to resolve all of these claims that they recklessly dispensed opioid prescription painkillers, all a part of the opioid epidemic and a a wave of lawsuits across the country. And we found this out from your favorite press releases from PR savvy Attorney General Dave Yost. But uh, nationwide, this is $3.1 billion for a deal to settle all of the cases. The deal requires at least 43 states to sign on by the end of the year. It's pretty quick. And local governments have until the end of March of next year to join the deal. Yeah, it's a lot of money. I mean, when you add, it'll be interesting to see how much Cleveland and Cuyahoga County get when everything's said and done, because it's just been huge sums of money to pay for their roles. And what's interesting is they all tried to deny they had a role, but they all did have a role. They all made boatloads of cash uh, on the pain and suffering of uncountable people uh, and now the, the money coming back is, is, we haven't seen things like this. I guess the cigarette settlement was the previous standard, but the, the, the sums are just beyond they, imagination. They are, but think about all of the count, uh, tax dollars spent on all of the programs to deal with it, right? And all of the increase in work for coroners. And I mean, th- that's just aside from the pain and suffering of people and families, So Walmart has also agreed to make robust improvements in their oversight over their pharmacies as part of the deal. But you're right. I mean, this comes about two weeks after CVS and Walgreens offered to pay a settlement worth $10.7 billion. So 
they are large sums of cash, which make you wonder how much money these companies have, right? Yeah. It's today in Ohio. Who's the new head of Cleveland's police accountability team? The folks charged with making sure the city complies with the consent decree with the Justice Department. Courtney, this is a good get, it looks like. Uh, Somebody with an interesting background about police accountability. Yeah, it does seem like a pretty impressive resume for this role, or at least shows some experience that you want to see for this kind of role. Now, this police accountability team is a, is a new thing Mayor Bibbs put in place to to really just focus all of its efforts on getting Cleveland compliant with the consent decree. You know, that job's largely fallen to people like the police chief and the public safety director, but this is supposed to really focus the city's efforts and have people dedicated to consent decree implementation. And And Lee Anderson is the person that Bibbs tapped to lead this police accountability team, you know. She's a St. Louis native, and um, she she served as a member of the monitoring team for the consent decree that Ferguson, Missouri entered into after they entered into that in 2016 after police killed 18-year-old Michael Brown. So she was on that monitoring team, and, and she also has some work experience in the Chicago's, um, in Chicago's inspector general's office. Um, in, in that role, she oversaw police and public safety regarding internal, you know, investigations and things. So, you know, she seems like a good pick. And 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 Bib in a press release yesterday cited that experience. He said, you know, Anderson's deep experience from Ferguson to Chicago, plus, you know, her other professional background, training, research, um, she makes a perfect choice to help us see through this consent decree process. Yeah, Bibb has had a pretty good record of bringing people into his administration. One after another, they've been impressive. The sad thing was the consent decree was supposed to have ended some years ago, uh, but it keeps going on because they have not satisfied all the requirements yet, and it's part of this person's job to see that they do, right? Yeah, and and you know, Bibb has expressed that he wants to see the consent decree wrapped up within his first four years, given the extension we heard, gosh, I don't know how recently, a few weeks, few months, um, that it will be, it, it's looking like it's going to be extended past his, his fourth term, right? Or his his full first term, his, but he does yeah. want to get it wrapped up as soon as possible. And this is a tool he hopes can help him do that. All right. It's today in Ohio. That's it for the Wednesday episode. Thanks, Lisa, Lauren, Courtney. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back tomorrow with another discussion of the news. Mm-hmm.